You ready for the word of the Lord? Obviously, this Palm Sunday serves as the beginning of Holy Week for us. This service does as we turn our full attention to the work of Christ on the cross, all the events and circumstances leading up to the crucifixion, culminating next Sunday in that glorious celebration of his resurrection. Aren't you looking forward to next Sunday already? I am. Certainly hope you'll be with us, not only for either that 9 or the 11 o'clock service next Sunday, but also come to the Good Friday service this week. Maybe you've not typically done that. This is a year for you to come. Join us Good Friday. It's about a one-hour service. We, keep, try to, we do our best to keep it there. Uh, sometimes Brent gets long-winded, and I can't do anything about that. But uh, what? <laughs> okay. But we want you to come. Uh, Friday night's a great, great, great service. You know, as I approach a day like today, and uh, Pastor Brent and I have both discussed, this is such a rich time uh, for the church. The I want to sing every hymn, there's everything that's every gospel song uh, that I've ever heard. Some of you remember, I don't know why Jesus loved me. I don't know why he cared. Anybody go that far back with me? I don't know why he sacrificed his life. Oh, but I'm glad. I'm so glad he did. Is there an amen in the house for that? I'm going to ask you to stand one more time, very quickly. Two short verses. I'm going to ask you to read to me from the screens uh, the text from which I'm going to attempt to preach today. It's the words of the Apostle Paul given to us from 1 Corinthians. If you want to turn in your own Bible, that's fine. 1 Corinthians The first chapter, just two verses, verse 17 and 18, when the Apostle Paul says to us, To those who are, I'm so tempted to do a review from last week, (laughs) you are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And this obviously, the Apostle Paul, I happened to check uh, just yesterday, I think I checked nine versions of Scripture who said being saved, so that is there. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his most holy and infallible word. Please be seated. It's a common and well-known sermon title. I'm sure this title is being used across the country today, but I would like to speak for just a few minutes, and I will try to do my best to keep an uh, eye on the clock. That doesn't mean much, but I'm going to look at it occasionally, okay? But for the next few minutes, I want to speak on the preaching of the cross, the preaching of the cross. I think it's accurate to say that we're living in a day when the message of the church is changing. Many churches and even entire denominations seem to be drifting away from the old story, from the old message of salvation through the blood of Jesus. I still believe it. There does seem to be a movement toward a message of salvation through social activism salvation through political activism, salvation through good works, salvation through being the best you. 
But the old bloody message of the cross is quickly being replaced by a bloodless preaching that lacks power and it's lacking in hope. I found a, a quote from the 1800s. Mr. B.B. Warfield is credited with giving us this. A Christless cross, no refuge is for me. A crossless Christ, my Savior, may not be. But, O Christ crucified, I rest in Thee. Now, if you're like me, it takes a minute to wrap your brain around a Christless cross and a crossless Christ. But let me just try to quickly help you get there. A crossless Christ and a Christless cross, that's Jesus on your terms. But the real preaching of the cross is still about sin and it's still about sacrifice. Talk to me, please. Because without the shedding of blood, there is, there is what? No remission of sin because sin is a bloody issue. Whenever sin transpires, whenever sin happens or takes place, blood has to be shed. And Christ came to die for the righteous, not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Because on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true, its shame and reproach gladly bear till he calls me someday to my home far away where his glory forever, forever I will share. So I'll cherish that old rugged cross until my trophies at last I lay down. I don't have a lot of those, but till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. You and I are here this morning for one simple reason, because on a blood-soaked cross on a lonely hill, Jesus, the Son of God, died for our sin. Church, let me say this morning that the preaching of the cross is a strange message. Can you say strange message? In fact, the Scripture says, you read it a while ago to me, it's foolishness. When you examine the Greek root of the English word foolish, for me it's a triple click on my computer. I have some great programming that helps me. A triple click on the word foolishness gives me the, origi the origin of the word, where it came from. And so the Greek here is the word moria, moria, and it's essentially where we get the word moron. <laughs> well, we laugh, but you know what? The world thinks that we are morons that we are crazy, that we are senseless. You know, you are a peculiar people, right? Yes, some of us need to recognize that. We're a peculiar people. But the world thinks that we are, we're morons for getting up on a Sunday morning and getting to church when you could be in your bed resting. The world thinks we've lost our minds to get up every week and come and hear basically the same story. No matter who's standing behind this pulpit, you still come every Sunday fully expecting to hear essentially the same story, the gospel of Jesus. Am I right about it? So either something's wrong with you 
or something's wrong with the story. So since nothing's wrong with the story, and I'm presuming that there's nothing wrong with you, it must be foolishness to them who are perishing. But it begs the question, how or why would you let someone who is perishing tell you anything? Someone who's perishing, why would you listen to them? Why would you let them have influence over you? Here I am standing safely on the banks of the river, and you're in the river drowning, but you're going to give me advice? To the lost and to the perishing, the idea of trusting a suffering, bleeding man for salvation is moronic. In the same chapter that you read from, this 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, let me jump to a couple of other verses. I'm at verse 21. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching or the foolishness of preaching, other versions say, to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles, it's really referring to the Greeks, they think we're nuts. It's worded a little different than King James. They say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, I got a big statement I want to make to you here today, and it's a mouthful. I want you to wrap your brain around it. To preach the gospel of the cross is as if, to preach it as if it's from a philosophic system would be to empty it of its salvific efficacy. Say that five times in a row. <laughs> to preach the gospel of the cross as if it is from a philosophic system would be to empty it of its salvific efficacy. If the gospel, it's another way of saying, if the gospel of the cross is simply a philosophy, if it's simply uh, an intellectual exercise through human wisdom, and many people want to reduce it to that, if the gospel of the cross is simply a philosophy, then it has no power to produce salvation within you and me. The cross is about a man dying. And there are other men who died on a cross besides Jesus, namely those two thieves that we read about. But you know what? When they died, nothing happened. Oh, but when Christ died? I said, when Christ died? Wish I had some help here this morning. I said, when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was rent from the top to the bottom knocking out forever an intermediary between God and man. Hallelujah! Heaven's doors were thrown wide open and every man could go to God for himself. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Our dear friend, Jaron, couldn't help but think of the words of the song that he wrote that we sing here, this choir, and Pastor Brent sings so wonderfully. In the Holy of Holies... Behind 
the heavy veil set the ark of the covenant where the Most High dwelt. And only the high priest could enter therein to offer up a sacrifice for atonement for sin. Oh, but the veil was rent in an instant, revealing that holy place on a hill nearby, on a rugged cross, justice met grace. Now I can go into the holy of holies. I can kneel and make my petitions known. I can go into the holy of holies, and although I'm just a common man, because of God's redemption plan, I can boldly approach the throne of God. And the bridge says, the blood of sacrifices is no more required. For the blood of Christ, oh, somebody ought to be thankful for that today. The blood of sacrifices is no more required for the blood of Christ, the spotless lamb, completely, completely, completely paid the price. And the sacrifice of worship will open heaven's doors, allowing us to enter in the presence of the Lord. Now I can go into the holy of holies. In fact, you're invited to come in to make your petitions known. He died Christ died, but when Christ died, something happened. And then early on Sunday morning, he got up out of that grave. That, that alone, the fact that he died and that he, that he got up on Sunday morning, that ought to make you give God praise on any day of the week, not just Sunday. That ought to make you raise a hallelujah even in your car on the way to work. To the perishing, it's foolishness. But I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. I'll believe whatever the cost. When time is surrendered and earth is no more, I'm going to still cling to the old rugged cross. I know I'm quoting lots of song lyrics this morning. I can't help it. And try to stop me. Good luck. This, this season of the year, is, it's like a treasure for the church. And nothing moves my heart more than when I hear someone sing, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty saints. Is that the testimony of anybody in this room today? The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And something happens inside this heart when I hear, alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a... Okay, you learned worm too? The way I learned it, and they've tried to change. I guess they don't want, somebody doesn't like being called a worm. I've heard for such a wretch as I, for such a one as I, for such a man as I. Guess what? I'm a worm for such a worm as I. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. Hey, okay, Dan, why do you do that? Why are you dragging us through all that? Can I just tell you, those songs are written on the walls of this heart right here. They are the song of my heart. So when I hear them, it's not just lyrics, it's not just melody, it's not just chords. It's something from the depths of my being because I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
I know what it is to be forgiven of my sin because of what Jesus has done. So that's why that's the song of my heart. They're not just lyrics and words. They're, they're strength and nourishment to my soul. I, I learned them as a child, and even though I didn't have a clue what they meant when I learned them, I watched others around me with tears rolling down their cheeks as they sang them, and I remember just saying, God, I hope I know what that means someday when I get to be that age. And now I've lived enough life to understand what it really, really means when I sing my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord! Oh, my soul! Somebody stop me before I sing the whole hymnal. Let me present this idea to you. The cross is the symbol of a plus sign in mathematics. There's a vertical beam and a horizontal beam, which represents the plus sign in mathematics. But in Christianity, the cross is, the cross is God's plus sign for my minus-minded humanity. Everything in my life that was in the deficit column, the cross puts it in the plus column. Everything in my life that was a liability, the cross has made it an asset. You and I both have things in our past whereby God should have minused us out. But because we have experienced and lived and are witnesses to the grace, the marvelous grace of Jesus, at the cross it became a plus and God forgave our minus-minded humanity. Now let me tell you, that's a strange message. It's utter foolishness to them that are perishing. And honestly, it might, it might be crazy if that were the end of the story. But let me just hear, I'm here to tell you, Friday is not the end of the story. And there may be some people here today, and I, I understand this, that you're in the Friday of your situation. But I remind you that Sunday morning is coming in your life. Because early on Sunday morning, he got up out of that grave. And I speak to you upon the authority of the Word of God. He will resurrect your broken dreams. He will resurrect your torn up life. He will resurrect your dashed hopes. He will bring resurrection to your crucified vision. It's foolishness to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's a strange message. The preaching of the cross is a strange message indeed. It's also a shocking message. This gets a little uncomfortable, but I don't know how I avoid it. Crucifixion was considered the ultimate in cruel, degrading punishment. It can be traced back to the Persians who would publicly humiliate vanquished foes by exhibiting their corpses on spikes. That is why to this day in the Middle East, uh, that's with that Persian influence, ISIS decapitates and impales the head or the body on spikes. We've seen pictures of it, unfortunately. 
that comes from the Persians and their version of crucifixions. It was, to, it was all about public humiliation, to degrade, to shame the, vic, the victim. The Carthaginians and the Romans changed this by devising a cruel, inhumane, torturous death, by, not by impaling on a spike, but by hanging on a cross. For the Carthaginians, they designed a particularly slow and excruciating death, whereby they would tie the person on a cross with ropes, you see ropes up there, and let him expire as his weight slowly cut off his blood circulation. Their arms slowly turned to gangrene and they died of asphyxiation. But for a quicker death, the Romans then nailed their victims to a cross so that they would bleed to death. And not only would they bleed to death, but sometimes they would aid the process by scourging them beforehand, the Romans, and they would break their legs so that the shock would cause instant death to the weakened victim. Now, except for the breaking of the legs, that's exactly what they did to Jesus. John's gospel makes it clear to us that not a bone of Christ's body was broken, John 19, 36. Christ was whipped all night long. They, they, they hit him with their fists. They blindfolded him and they mocked him and they pulled out his beard. They put nails and spikes and pieces of bone and metal on the ends of a whip and whipped him with it until his back was lacerated from the whipping. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They cursed him. They spat upon him and then they said, if you are the son of God, save yourself, then we will believe. It was such a degrading end of life that a, a Roman citizen could only be crucified by direct edict from Caesar himself. To the Jews, crucifixion meant that the person was outside the covenant. That's why the crucifixions always took place outside the gates of Jerusalem, which is the imagery of the Old Testament scapegoat. You've heard of it. They would take two he-goats and, and confess the sins of the people on those goats, and, and they would then sacrifice one of them. They would write down sins on, of the people on something like paper and tie it around the neck of the, of the other goat and then turn it loose in the wilderness, and, and he would become for them a scapegoat. That's why Jesus was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem, because he became our scapegoat. The most simple definition of a scapegoat is this. You committed the crime, but they put it on somebody else. Is that your story? It should have been me on that cross. But he took my place. Jesus paid it all. Who's thankful this morning? He became my scapegoat. God put my sin on his back, for he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The ch chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Bethesda, we're talking about the preaching of the cross today. In the preaching of the early church, the, that, uh, the Greek word for preaching is kerygma. Kerygma, the, or the charismatic function, the preaching of the early church, the charismatic function, fo that focused on the resurrection. It, it was the apostolic basis of the gospel for the early church. They preached kerygma, the resurrection, but their teaching focused on the crucifixion, 
The theological basis for their teaching was the crucifixion of, of Jesus Christ because without a crucifixion, there can be no resurrection. And if Christ is not raised, then our faith is in vain. If Christ be not raised, our preaching, our charisma is in vain and we are yet in our sin. For if in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. But let me speak clearly today, according to the Scriptures, He died, He was buried, and on the third day He rose again. And Paul said, we preached it and you believed it. And I'm simply saying, let us never fail to embrace the preaching of the cross. Every preacher who claims the name of Jesus, starting with me, including me, must never forget Jesus is all we have. Jesus and Jesus crucified. That is our message. That is our gospel. That is our story. Any other message is pointless. I hope you heard that. Christ died on Friday for your sin after enduring a horrific crucifixion but he rose three days later on Sunday morning. That ought to be enough to save anybody. He died. Didn't he die? But early on Sunday morning, he got up from the grave with all power in his hands. It's a strange message. It's a shocking message. And it's a simple message. Here's how simple it is. You and I were on our way to hell. We were lost and without a Savior. If we needed money... God would have sent an economist. If we had needed knowledge, he would have sent a philosopher. But since our real need was to be saved, God sent a Savior. Jesus Christ came for the lost to seek and to save that which was lost. Sometimes when we think of someone who's lost, we think of someone coming from the streets. But to be lost doesn't necessarily have to mean that you come from the street. Well, that certainly is true of some in this house today. But some of us don't have the testimony that God took us off of drugs or God uh, delivered us from alcohol. That's not our testimony. Some of us don't have the testimony that God stopped us from being in prostitution or that God got us out of jail. That's not the testimony of everyone in this house today. It is some, but it's not everyone. But in fact, your testimony may well be that God kept you from the streets. God kept you from prostitution. God kept you from sex trafficking. God kept you out of jail. And it wasn't because you were so holy, but because God has his hand on you and because someone was praying before you, for you. Someone was faithfully lifting you before the Lord Jesus. It's a strange message. It's a shocking message. But it's a simple message. It is as simple as this. Please allow me a couple of minutes to give you the gospel from a 30,000-foot view. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea, born of a peasant girl named Mary who had not physically been with a man. She was a virgin. Because the substitute, the one who would die in your place on the cross, had to be pure, the sacrifice could not be tainted with sin in any way. So Christ could not be Joseph's son by blood. Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and she conceived in her womb the perfect sacrifice. He was born in Bethlehem. He was reared in Nazareth by his father Joseph and his mother Mary. He grew up in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. 
When he was about 30 years old, he went to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the baptizer who happened to be his cousin. And when John saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when John baptized him, the heavens opened, a dove descended, and a voice from heaven was heard to say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Am I telling you the truth today? And then he went into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days by the devil. After all the ways that Satan tried to tempt him, Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You shall worship the Lord our God, and him only shall you serve. And he went to a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee and turned water into wine. By then, they had an idea that he might be the Son of God. Then he was out in the wilderness, and there was no place to buy any bread. And a young boy had two fish and five loaves of bread. Jesus took that small amount of food and fed 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. By then, they had an idea he might be the Son of God. Then he told them to get in a boat and go over to the other side. And while they were walking on the, while they were over on the other side, he came walking on the water. Peter said, Lord, if that is you, bid me to come to you on this, on this water. You know, this Jesus might be the Son of God. Peter's mother-in-law got so sick that she almost died. And Jesus went and laid his hand on this dear sister. And she got up and went to the kitchen and fixed a meal. It's possible this Jesus could be the Son of God. Jairus' daughter was at the point of death. And they said, if you'll come and lay hands on this child, she will be healed and she will live. And Jesus went with them. But on the way to the house of Jairus, there was a woman with an issue of blood. And she touched the hem of his garment. And though, though the crowd was pressing around him and many people around him, he knew that someone had touched him for he had perceived that virtue had gone out from him. Why? You think he could be the son of God? Am I telling you the truth today? They brought him to the judgment hall. Pilate judged him. Herod judged him. Then sent him back to Pilate again. And then Mrs. Pilate said, have nothing to do with this man. I've dreamed about him all night long. And Pilate said, bring me some water and let me wash my hands. I don't want to be guilty of the blood of this man. I wonder if this Jesus could be the Son of God. And then Friday morning, they marched him up a hill. They hung him on a cross. They hung him high and they stretched him wide and they took his body down and they laid him in Joseph's tomb and he stayed there all Friday night. They still had an idea he might be the son of God. He stayed there all Saturday night. They're wondering if he might be the son of God. But early, I said early, I said early on Sunday morning. The women went to the tomb, and the angel was sitting on the tomb saying, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen just like he said. Come and see the place where the Lord was laid. And now they don't just have an idea that he's the Son of God. They're not just wondering if he's the Son of God. Now they know that he's the Son of God. But in this house this morning at Bethesda, some of us grew up with an idea that Jesus was the Son of God. It was maybe. Some of you have wondered and questioned if he was the Son of God. But you know what? Then you got in trouble and he came to your rescue. Now you know he's the Son of God. Many in this house have been sick in body. The doctor said there was no hope for you. You shouldn't make it. 
The doctor said there was no hope for you. You shouldn't make it. But then Jesus came and touched you, laid his hand upon you. Now you know he is the Son of God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who is in this house this morning that can lift your voice and say, I know he is the Son of God. Come on, bless the name of the Lord Jesus. Put your hands together and bless him in this house today.